Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Bonnie Hoskins, and I'm in London, England, with Mark Pringle. Hi, Bonnie. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Bonnie. Joining us from White Plains, New York, is the excellent Fred Goodman. Hi, Fred. Bonnie, wonderful to hear you and see you. Fred has <laughs> written for Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair and countless other publications, and is the author of books such as The Magnificent Mansion on the Hill, We'll be hearing about his career and talking a lot about his latest book, Rock on Film, the movies that rocked the big screen. First off, Fred, was there a moment in your young life that served as some sort of epiphany, a moment when you you knew you were going to sell your soul to rock and roll? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, well, then we can't, we can't well, really do this. It was great to talk to you, Barney. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, yeah sorry. That's the, that's the test, right? Well, it, you know, like, you like so stuff. many, like so many of us, right? I, I was a guy who wanted to be a writer. I was working in a record store, you know, looking around, you know, how, how do you figure out how to write, you know, and not work in a record store. And, and, uh, I kind of put the two together. I had been living in upstate New York and I moved to New York and took a job at a record warehouse, you know, what they used to call a one stop, which was a small distributor. And I was doing it just at the time when Rapper's Delight came out in New York, which was an extraordinary street phenomenon. I mean, we used to literally sell it by the skidful every day. It's this one small <laughs> place on 11th Avenue in Manhattan. It sold more than the top 20 albums we had, you know, and I noticed that there was nothing about rap music in the press, even, you know, places like New York Rocker or the Village Voice for like another year. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it was like incredible how far behind, you know, even the hip press was to what was happening on the streets. And that was kind of an interesting moment for me, having worked in these record stores and warehouses and stuff like that. I wound up getting a job at Cashbox, which was a music industry trade journal. Because I had retail experience, you know, and became their jazz columnist and that sort of thing. And one thing led to another, went from there to Billboard and then to Rolling Stone. And it kind of grew. Uh, and after a couple of years at Rolling Stone, I decided, well, you know, I might as well do something for myself. And Mansion on the Hill was the first part of that. Before we get on to Mansion, before we enter the Mansion, I'm interested to ask whether you, because you've written so much about the music business and the history of the music business, you know, whether you're you know, sensibility lent more that way. Did you feel any kinship with the famous American rock writers of the like mid to late sixties and then the seventies, or were you always more interested in the kind of business side of it? Well, it's, it's good. You know, it's funny because I started coming up with the trades, you were taught to write fast, you know, and, and it wasn't until I got to Rolling Stone that the idea that you could write good, you know, was kind of became a premium, right? I mean, before that, it was just fill the magazine. So that was a big turnaround, you know, to suddenly have the time to do that and to look at it that way. And that's really when I started going back. I mean, I was not, you know, somebody walking around, you know, with Charlie Gillett under my arm. It was later, you know, that you would find these guys and read them. And in fact, it took me until well into my career to start reading beyond music criticism, you know, to go back and read film critics and, you know, literary critics and, you know, thinking about, well, what did this essayist do? And, you know, what would Tom Wolfe had approach this? And, you know, it's very much what's in front of you when you're trying to get going, right? So it's only later that you start, at least in my case, that I got to get a perspective. 
And of course, Mansion on the Hill kind of gave me a chance to get back to that because so much of it was about, you know, the early days of music journalism, John Landau and some of these other guys, you know, the the, the start of uh, Crawdaddy and these other publications. So I kind of worked backwards. A lot of it is self-invention. You know that. <laughs> Let's enter that mansion, the mansion on the hill. Let me turn around to get the, the, the subtitle accurately. Dylan, you'll, this is the American subtitle. I think it was slightly different here in the UK. Dylan Young, Geffen, Springsteen, and the head-on collision of rock and commerce. I always loved the fact that you got head-on collision <laughs> into a subtitle. But that is what it's about. And it was not that no one had ever written about the intersection of kind of business, greed, and creativity before. But this was the first book that really made me wake up to, I suppose, the kind of disingenuousness of a lot of a lot of <laughs> rock and roll, right? You know, we're here to save the world and be these kind of hippie freaks, but actually we just kind of want to get rich and, and laid. Well, you know, I, I mean, in my old age, I've, I've come to, you know, embrace the line that, you know, my line is, you know, like the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan, I'm doing this for money. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's interesting because the other part was I really got interested in the business part of it. I mean, there is a certain, I wouldn't call it an art, but there's a skill to it. You know, you do get this realization that where there's a string of great albums, there's a great artist. And where there's a great career, there's usually a great manager. You know, there are so few people who can do both. You know, Mick Jagger can do both, you know. Uh, yes. You know, Bob Dylan doesn't need a manager. You know, the list is not long. So we have these, you know, situations where you see careers that do or don't happen based on somebody that the public really has no idea about. You know, and that was one of the things that really drove my interest in Mansion on the Hill. And it started when I was working at the trades. You know, when I was at Cashbox, we talked to anybody. You know, there were three trades in America back then, Cashbox, Record World, and Billboard. You know, and there was a joke, if you wanted to describe the three magazines, the joke was, you know, if the record company sent a press release to those three places, they printed it at Record World just as they got it, they rewrote it at Cashbox, and they put it in the garbage at Billboard. So, you know, (laughs) there was this sort of different identities, and we at at Cashbox, we used to talk to everybody. So artists were constantly coming through the place, which was great. But somewhere after like, you know, a couple of months of this, you notice that there's always a guy in the back of the room leaning against the wall who has nothing to say. But when he does say something, he usually turns out to be the smartest guy in the room. And it's the manager. And I got very interested in what was going on in that. So that was sort of, you know, my epiphany on the on the business piece of it. What do you see as the role of, of a great manager then, other than being the smartest guy in the room? Well, it's it's multiple things. I mean, you know, the most important thing, of course, is that you're facilitating the career, you know, and you're trying to protect it and grow it in all the ways it can. But you also have to be the bringer of reality to the artist, and you have to figure out a way to get them to get acclimated to the world. You know, I've gotten to know Irving Azoff pretty well over the years, and he, of course... A very successful American manager. People who don't know me manage the Eagles forever. Is but he's also managed dozens of other acts, and his son now manages Harry Styles. So it, hmm. it's a sort of incredible empire. And Irving's thing is, you know, he says the first thing he says to a new client is, "It's called the music business. If you don't <laughs> take care of business, you're not going to get to make any music." Yeah. 
you know, and, yeah. and that's sort of the burger of reality piece of it. Yes. Yes. Mark, can you remember, I mean, we met, probably around the time that the mansion on the hill was published yeah that's so I, right. I, I and i know you you revere the book highly can you remember how you came to read it because uh, you have this american edition and you can't remember where you bought it i can't answer any of these questions Barney. <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know you 19- know you have it and you no- know you've read it 1997 is <laughs> a long time ago um no i mean i i, I loved it i mean it told me a lot that I didn't know, though broadly it didn't tell me anything I didn't know. That, that you know, mm-hmm. I was aware of the power of the, the managers and so on and so forth. It was absolutely fascinating. I mean, the way that, that Geffen Roberts sort of built their empire and David Geffen. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Went on to kind of create even bigger empire. John Landau has, I mean, a journalist basically taking over the management of, of Bruce Springsteen with a great deal of difficulties surrounding that, because Mike Apple was Bruce Springsteen's previous manager. Is that That's correct? correct? Yeah. And a, the, the, the shenanigans that surround that can, you know, continue to be fascinating. But I just think it's important these things are written about that actually too many people romanticise the music business and being a musician, and it's pretty good to get a sort of cold shower of the nuts and bolts of. Well, I'm, I'm glad you put it that way. You know, of course, I, I must tell you. I mean, as somebody who's read. God knows how many <laughs> music books, you know, <laughs> I, I, you, there, there's for me this whole problem of the sort of romantic 
notion of it that, mm-hmm. you know, so many of these stories are heroic journeys that probably never happened, <laughs> you know, yes. is, is how I feel about so many of the books that are put out there. And, you know, it's it's a bit of self-flattery, but I like to say that I write books for adults. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, when the book, I reviewed the book for Mojo Fred and interviewed you when it came out. And there were, there was like, it was a Mojo kind of three questions following the review. And you said, to me, the depressing part is just the notion that the critical currency gets misspent so frequently. There isn't enough serious talking about the subject, and there aren't enough places that will allow you to talk about it seriously. In this country, at least, the rock press has been so badly eclipsed by video, by the fact you can read record reviews in every newspaper and magazine in the country, blah, blah, blah. Usually the view is all Steinbeck and leather. That's the image everyone wants to present. <laughs> and if you don't present that, you're in for a bit of a fight. I love that. <laughs> Steinbeck and leather. That's a great title for, an, for a Bruce Springsteen album. That's very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, it, it sort of dispels a lot of the romantic bullshit around rock and roll. While, you know, you also, it's not like you're saying there's no great, music out there no, it's all been a all. complete hoax or a con i mean that's that's not the point at all a lot of these people are extraordinary and i mean dylan and young are in your subtitle and um is there any reason you particularly picked them is that because of the albert grossman chapter and because of the you know, like geffen how how much there is on geffen in there well you know i was fascinated by the landau springsteen relationship i mean I, i've never spoken to bruce springsteen you know but i knew john landau right and I had a perspective on it because of that, that I felt a lot of people didn't have. I mean, I, you know, I read so many Bruce Springsteen interviews and there were moments when I thought, this guy sounds like John Landau, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not knocking it because, you know, you, you have conversations and you develop and people help you formulate your ideas. John was his producer, you know, and, and his sort of sounding board and his advocate and all these things, you know, and had a huge impact on him. So that was really the core of it was that. And then I went, started looking back and I felt that Albert Grossman, you know, who's somebody you've obviously written about so much, Marty, is that he was sort of the guy who modernized it. Yeah. I mean, he's taking these people on their merits, you know, and, and saying these are artists who deserve to be treated like artists. You know, who are you to decide what the Peter, Paul and Mary album cover should look like? Who are yes. you to decide what Bob Dylan's going to record? You know nothing. They know everything. Forget it. You know, and, and this, of course, is radical, you know, at, at that point. I mean, Brian Epstein didn't think that way. Right. No, no, no precisely. It's funny that just a few days ago, as I was starting to think about this episode and talking to you, I was reading a long Q&A with John Sinclair and – and I look back at my review of The Mansion on the Hill, and it, and it says something like, one of the few people to come out of this book with any real credit is John Sinclair, you know, the manager of the, of the MC5. And in this Q&A, he's asked about back in the USA, and he's, he's just, he just really dismisses it. You know? <laughs> um, I, I don't know whether he – I can't remember if he slags Lando off, but as far as he's concerned – it's a betrayal of what the MC5 had been, which is a sort of truly radical force on Kick Out the Jams. And here's this Boston rock critic coming in and getting them to record like three minute covers of like Back in the USA, obviously by Chuck yeah. Berry. And it's yeah. very, it's, it's almost like this sort of garage teen rock album, isn't it? It's so different. Anyway, it, 
it amused me. It's completely different. I mean, you know, look, it, yeah, it, you know, John Sinclair has a vision. You know, John Lando has a different vision. You know, the MC5 are trying to figure out what to do. I mean, I think ironically, their best record is the one they made after they got done with both of them. The high time. Oh, you're like high time. <laughs> you're a high time fan. <laughs> I, I think that's a fan. I think that's the MC5 it's as they were meant to be. You yeah. know, I, I mean, they finally walked it like they talked it, you know. Um, <laughs> that's so, great. So I really loved it. But, you know, John had a good take on them. I mean, you know, he saw them at the Grandy Ballroom, you know, in, in Detroit. You know, and he described them as the greatest 15 minutes in rock and roll, <laughs> you, you know, which is it's like an explosion. And then what? Yeah. You know, so I think back in the USA is, is an effort to, you know, do and then what. But there's something reductive to it that's not necessarily, I think, what the MC5 had in mind. And it's certainly not what John Sinclair was interested in, <laughs> you know. So so that's kind of an interesting take at it. But, you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, John takes great credit for that stuff. I mean, he had once said to me in a conversation back in the USA, kind of sounds like born in the USA, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You've written more wonderful books. I think when I met you a few years ago, well, got almost 10 years ago, you were you were already at work on your Alan Klein yeah. book, which was fascinating. And you had written a book about Warner Brothers. You'd written a book about the Edgar Bronfman era, Fortune's Fool, that came out in 2010. More recently, the book before Rock on Film was a book in the series Why, you know, XXX Matters about the Mexican-American singer Lassa de Sala. Tell us how you came to write that. Well, you know, it's really it's a really kind of a tragic story. I mean, I was listening to WBAI, the radio station in New York one day, and, you know, they introduced a record by saying, here's Lassa de Sala who died New Year's Day. And, you know, I heard this record anywhere on this road that I thought was one of the greatest records I'd ever heard. And yeah. I thought, well, this person just died and I never heard of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sent me off on this quest to find out who she was. And who she was turned out to have been, as you say, you know, a woman who was born, had a hippie birth near Woodstock, New York. Her parents were hippies and she was brought up in a school bus going back and forth between Mexico and, and the States, her mother was an American, her dad was Mexican. And she had a bunch of sisters who became circus performers. They, you know, all homeschooled, no TV, no television. I mean, the whole, you know, thing, right? Living in, you know, all kinds of crazy setups. Sounds like sort of Ricky Lee Jones's story in, in well, parallel. Well, you know, I mean, this, this is just kind of like, you know, it's mind-boggling. I mean, they, yeah. they, they were in a Dorothy Day community, you know, the Catholic Workers Farm. It was all kinds of stuff. And she wound up in Montreal because her sisters went to the circus school there and became a cabaret singer singing in Spanish, which is wild because, of course, they speak French in Montreal. (laughs) Quite. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she became a real sensation. I mean, she wound up becoming very well known and, and a, you know, gold record selling artist in Canada, went on to similar 
results in France and parts of Europe, was very big on the sort of world music service. You know, I mentioned Charlie Gillett. Charlie Gillett was one of her great advocates. You know, used to put him on the BBC World Music Program, have her on and this kind of thing. But she never cracked in the States. I mean, she made three great records, one all in Spanish, one in Spanish, French, and English. And the last one, when she was trying to establish herself in the U.S. in English. But she wound up getting breast cancer in her mid-30s. And she uh-huh. died when she was 37, you know, just after this record came out. She was a wonderful and a, amazing artist. And I wrote this book basically because I was trying to get America, you know, to give her a listen. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel very yeah. passionate about it. I would recommend her, you know, to, to really anybody to check out Lasa de Sella. We listened to her yesterday in, in the office together. And I, we all, I think, kind of are picked up and just thought, you know, it's really beautiful voice, really kind of sense, kind of directness to the whole thing, which I thought was really moving. Yeah, she had a real romantic take on life, a very unusual woman. She's really like nobody else, you know, so so I, I would recommend it. And thank you for giving me a chance to talk about her. I, uh, you know, she, she was sort of something that was in my mind to do for years, you know, and then when Stephen was starting this series, uh, the Why Music Matters series, he came to me and asked me to do one. And I said, well, would you let me write about somebody you've never heard of? <laughs> yeah. And he said, and he well, said, tell yes. me more. You know, okay. and, 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 you know, he, he went for it. So I'm grateful. Well, on the basis of what you've just told us, I think I would have said, go ahead myself, actually. You know, it certainly makes me want to read it. And I will do that. Yeah. Mm. I, she's a fascinating, I mean, a naive musician. You know, she, she couldn't read or write music. I mean, there are clips of her playing piano with two fingers. But the stuff's incredible. I mean, you know, she just has this sort of naive musician's ability to hear things in a way that few people do. Let's talk about your new book, Rock on Film, Fred, which is, I mean, just, just to kind of reduce it to the bare facts, it's, it's about 50 essential films. Well, about 100, because you managed to get these double features. Double features. So, yes, that's clever. Yeah. That's cleverly <laughs> done. I like that, that device. Um, but it's also interspersed with uh, some Q&A, some interviews with, well, Cameron Crowe and Jim Jarmusch. Penelope Spheris, who we're hoping to have on the podcast next month. It's just a wonderful celebration of all sorts of very different kind of music films. I suppose maybe a good first question would be, you know, you could have written probably about 2,000 music films. What was your process of inclusion and elimination? And tell us about some of the films. Well, you know, the first thing I'd just like to add is that, you know, it struck me that nobody has done a book like this in over 30 years. I mean, the last one that I know of, you know, was Marshall Crenshaw's. Marshall Crenshaw, yeah. You know, yeah. And that was a long time ago. Yeah. You know, uh, and a lot of movies have been made since then. Yeah. You know, yes. some of them quite good, you know. So yes. I felt like, okay, it was there to be done and it should be done. So I took it on. And, and as far as the 50 format, you know, I we have a American uh, cable operation, Turner Classic Movies here, which I did it as part of their imprint. They, they do a book series. And I looked a little at their format. I, I went my own way. I just thought 50 was a good number. You know, I was reminded from my years at Rolling Stone, we used to do these special issues, you know, the 100 greatest albums of the 90s, you know, 500 you, you greatest co-ed- singles. You co-edited one of those, didn't you? Yeah, you co-edited yeah. the, the 80s volume. The one of the but, 80s yeah. or something, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I remember doing those essays. I thought, well, why don't I just follow that format? 
you know, and if I put in the sidebars for a double feature, it gives me a chance to, you know, write short pieces and get the number up. So it's a matter of mixing, in my mind, the essentials and things that you think are underappreciated that, you know, maybe should get out there. And I viewed it as that there were basically, you know, three types of films. You know, there's the sort of original fictional, you know, Hard Day's Night kind of thing. And that spawns this. And then you get the documentaries. And then to me, the Adam and Eve of it is don't look back on a hard day's night. You know, everything before that is just kind of floundering around, you know. And I think Mm -hmm. the genre really comes into its own when those two films come along. And everything is essentially descended from that. Those two films, that's why I say they're Adam and Eve, with this sort of third bastard child, you know, the biopic. Yeah. <laughs> Which existed before rock and roll movies, you know, the Glenn Miller story or the Benny Goodman story. I mean, isn't there also the fourth category of the musical? Because there are a few musicals in the book. Yeah, there are a few musicals. That's true. Although I always think of them as part of that original, you know, scripting process, you know. Mm, yeah, sure. But kind of like, sort of like, you know, modern opera in some in some respects. <laughs> Storytelling through music rather than, you know, it's a play that has the exposition is done via music. Yeah. I must confess that that's sort of my least favorite of all of these. But you chose some to include. Oh, I mean, sure. What, what, like, how do you not do Rocky Horror? You know. For example. <laughs> yes, I love. I mean, I love Rocky Horror. I was really pleased to see that in there. It's such a phenomenon of of pop culture. Was that a kind of criterion? Is that that you know that pop culture had to factor in? And that, I mean, oh, you know, a- to curate because that. There, yeah, you know, there were some films in here that's like, look, I'm not going to sit. You know, personally, I don't want to sit down and watch Rock and Roll High School. But there are people who love it, right? And, you know, why can't they love it? You know, there's no reason not to. So, yeah, you try and do a big Ted piece of it. And then, you know, point out things. You know, there are films in here like, you know, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, you know, or the film on Ian Dury, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, which I think are really exceptionally good films that very few people know about. Yeah, I confess I haven't seen either of those. Oh, Barney, no, you, you would love both those films. I, I, I think I, I think I would, but it made me, I mean, looking through the book, I, I kind of figured I've probably seen about half of these. But why haven't I seen that one? And why haven't I seen that one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I, a strange thing, but you don't sometimes go out of your way to see a rock film. And maybe, mainly because I think so many of them have been terrible over the years. There's so many terrible documentaries, so many terrible biopics yeah. that you don't like, oh, I must go and see the new Queen biopic. Right. I did eventually see it just on the basis that it, it was so successful. I right. thought, well, I better, better see why, you know. But yeah, so maybe, I mean, at a mark, I mean, how many of these did you feel you had seen? Oh, I mean, perhaps... Something about a half, uh, yeah. yes, and that's that sort of territory. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, the first one that I saw when it came out was Hard Day's Night. I'd have been eight yes. years old, nine mm-hmm. years old, yeah, me and too. I still I love it today. I think it's an astonishing movie, and put it in a particularly strong relief because their next movie was the appalling Help, Help, yeah, yeah. which which is just just shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not, well, not I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, this is one of the great things when you do these essays, you get to write about. I mean, really, you know. It's so funny because A Hard Day's Night is made under incredible duress. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole thing is done in 90 days. You know, yeah. and when I say 90 days, I mean started day one in the theater 90 days later. Right. You know? And and it's, you know, because That's no one knows so if good. the Beatles, yeah. Yeah. are the Beatles still going to be popular in three months? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. the world was so different then. And, of course, it's fascinating to see that it's such a great film. And, yes, 
you know, help is just a throwaway. You know, yes. it's it, it's just the only moment of unadulterated magic, you know, yeah. in their film yeah. career. And it's, yeah. it's it's it is about them as a band. That's what frames it entirely. Help something else. It's like let's have this band play parts in this other movie, you know. But but Hard Day's Night is absolutely about them being a band, about their relationship with their audience at that particular moment in time. All of that sort of stuff. It's also beautifully shot. It's it's fantastically well edited. It just yeah. moves. Yeah. It just grooves along, you know. By the way, the, the editing job is is bravuro. I mean, yeah. the guy who did, I can't, I'm not remembering his name, he had, prior to Hard Day's Night, he had just cut Zulu, right? Oh, right. <laughs> and, and, and it's like... Very similar film. But, you know, because they're on this tight budget to get the film done, there's no chance to, It's you, you don't have a rough edit. Everything's the sure. final edit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. They, they shot, you know, that climactic concert performance, right, in like two days. And yeah, yeah. there's six cameras, three on the audience, three on the Beatles. And every cut you're making is the final cut. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jasper, what did you think of it? Yeah, because I watched it for the first time ever this week. Uh, it's sort of in preparation to <laughs> just I thought I, I thought I ought to have seen it. And I really enjoyed it as a historical document, a really fun, interesting moment in time. And Mark, you said it's about them as a band. I'd go a step further and say it's about them as a boy band. Yes. <laughs> you know, what what you're saying about their relationship with their audience, it is all in that, you know, the climactic mm-hmm. end scene where the shots of the, the audience and they're like at alternate turns crying and screaming yeah. and all of this. You know, it really gets... People talk about the hysteria surrounding the Beatles, but A Hard Day's Night just makes it come alive again mm-hmm. in a way that's that's very honest and very authentic. You know, even though you know that they're kind of it's not true documentary, it's yeah. it's a film. They're they're yeah. making it up. The characters are characters, you know, the grandfather, it's you yeah. know, it's funny in that sense, it's comedic in that sense. Yes. But there's a grain of truth to it. I mean, one thing I will say is, I mean, in my job here at Rocks Back Pages, I've read a lot of Beatles interviews from exactly around that time. And it's them, you know, to whatever degree it's scripted or otherwise. The fact is, those personalities are the same people who Maureen Cleves interviews for the Evening Standard in 1964. Mm -hmm. All Mm -hmm. of that, you know, when she follows them to America, when they first visit to America, the way in which they talk, the way in which they converse with one another, it's in that film. It's actually, it is the Beatles at that moment. Yeah, I I, I agree. You know, what they did was they sent a journalist on a brief trip, a couple of dates through France. Right. You know, who followed them and got a sense of who they were and Mm -hmm. wrote it that way. And then Richard Lester allowed a great deal of, you know, improvisation and latitude that helps. And, you know, I agree. There are like scenes that stick in your mind. I mean, aside from the setup scene in the baggage car with Patty Boyd, you know, (laughs) which is just so good. Right. My favorite in the film is, is the backstair scene with John Lennon in the chorus girl, you know, because (laughs) it's like, it's John Lennon. I mean, this little put on riff that he's doing, Everything that he's going to do for the rest of his career is, is essentially right there. And it, it just feels great. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Two things just I want to insert here. One is that the homepage this week, because of you, Fred, is, is essentially a kind of cinematic special. And the centerpiece of the, of the, the free feature is an audio interview that our dear friend Matt Snow did with Richard Lester in 2004, where... Obviously, he talks about Hard Day's Night, he talks about the Beatles and, 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 and help 
to to some extent. And I listened to it a couple of days ago, and it's just delightful. What a lovely man he was. This this American in London, just thoroughly kind of good egg, really, Richard Lester, um, and must take a lot of credit for that wonderful film. That wonderful film. Yeah, I also uh, the, like other, make- the other thing just to mention. I just yeah. want to get this yeah. in. That I told just yesterday. Um, <laughs> yeah. In the very so the first thing you say about the film is you talk about the famous you know scene in the in the, uh, in the railway carriage, in the train carriage, and the the, the bowler hatted businessman comes in. That bowler hatted businessman was my uncle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, the late Richard Vernon. I love this Not detail. my blood it's uncle, but my aunt's or my father's sister's husband. Richard Vernon so for me seeing that movie as a kid and just like oh my god Richard's in a train with the Beatles and he's, <laughs> he's been anointed you know he's in... so that was an amazing moment Sorry to interrupt you there, Fred, but I just had to get that little nugget in. Can That's you remember what you were about to say? Well, I was just going to say, you know, you mentioned Richard Lester. I'd also like to make a little shout out to uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg, you know, uh-huh. who was nice enough to write a forward to the book for me, you know, who, of course, you know, worked on uh, Let It Be and uh, Rolling Stones, Rock and Roll Circus, and is a gentleman. It's funny because actually one of the articles I was going to talk about later on, but I'll talk about it now, is Maureen Cleave meeting Michael Lindsay Hogg, uh, writing up for the Evening Standard in 1965 when he was the Ready Steady Go director. And it's very funny. He arrived in Oxford with a large number of what were then considered very outre pink shirts and the reputation for being (laughs) the the illegitimate son of somebody fearfully glamorous, who, of course, is Orson Welles. I mean, because, again, he's an American in London. It's the same sort of, you know, Richard Lester, Michael Lindsay Hogg. It was was very much the same sort of thing. He says he thinks London is the most exciting place in the world. It allows a kind of flowering of the personality, he said. I think the pop singers are very brave, very daring. What they really have is a kind of public joie de vivre. So that, that's a, a, a nice Lindsay Hogg edition. I love the fact that in his introduction to your book, Fred, he, he talks <laughs> about Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg, who, of course, <laughs> is the chairman of the, the record company in Spinal Tap. We also have a, have a piece about Spinal Tap. When I was at NME in 1984, Cynthia Rose, another American um, who was on staff at NME in London, was the first person to talk to me about Spinal Tap and this film which was about to come out. And she said it really is absolutely hysterical. So we all went off to see the premiere and it was hysterical. It still is hysterical. I remember Neil Tennant sitting, of the Pet Shop Boys, sitting in the row in front of me, uh, just convulsed with hysterical laughter. I, I, I mean, do you... The only person I know uh, with with predictable perversity who doesn't think it's funny, of course, is John Mendelssohn, who <laughs> thinks that only he is funny. <laughs> but I, mean, I don't know anyone else who can sit straight face through spi- a Spinal Tap. I mean, I'm assuming you. I think you kind of say it really just gets it so. Accurate. It does, but you you know, there's a certain perversity to the people who do what we do. You know, yes. I mean, yes. I, and, yeah. and, and we, we like and dislike things for very obscure reasons. Yeah, not whether you we know. not whether we actually like them or not. You know, my, my, my good friend Ira Robbins, you know, uh, when I told him I was doing Frank as one of the films in the book, you know, told me he saw it in London and walked out. 
Well, why? <laughs> Be- because the original comedian who played the Frank Winterbottom character was someone Ira was a huge fan of, you know, and this goes in another direction and it just wasn't connecting to him. So, you know, it's just That's kind of like funny. There is such a thing as knowing too much. <laughs> <laughs> there, there really is. There really is. So we're going to move on to Don't Look Back, which you identify as the sort of second, when well, you talk Adam and Eve, the second like prototype for music films that have been made subsequently. I think, you, yes, documentaries on significant artists, scenes and events. And there are a number of those in your book. Uh, everything from, you know, Penelope Spheris' Decline of Western Civilization to the Metallica film. And yeah, I think you've put some really good ones in there. Don't Look Back is the is the daddy, isn't it? And I just, so just to read what you, I think, say very, very observantly in, in your chapter on Don't Look Back. This is the revolution that's at the heart of Don't Look Back. A portrait of a rock performer that stands back, observing and sometimes skeptical and not selling anything. That was pretty radical for the time. And as you say, there's there's not even that much concert footage in it. Tell tell us just for any listener who's not seen it or isn't aware of it, tell us about Don't Look Back and Don Panabaker. Well, you know, Bob Dylan did a brief tour of England. It's only like seven or eight dates, you know, uh, in 1964. Albert Grossman, whom we were talking about before, Dylan's manager, thought it might be a good idea to get some footage, maybe for a promotional clip or something. From Didn't know what, but hired Pennebaker, who was known as an American documentarian. And Pennebaker had gotten very good at developing his own method of making films that really didn't require much of a crew. You needed a camera operator, someone with a light, and someone with a microphone, and that was it. And he tried mm-hmm. to make himself small and blend in as much as he could and kind of, you know, pretend I'm not here, let life go on kind of thing. And whether that happens or not, it's certainly very interesting because you don't really know. Is that successful? Is this? Are we really seeing Bob Dylan with his hair down, or are we seeing Bob Dylan looking at D.A. Pennebaker and going, why is this guy filming me? You know, so (laughs) what are we seeing here becomes really the central question of Don't Look Back. And all the action, all the action happens behind the scenes. There there is not a single full concert performance. There's, I I say in in the piece that it's more like a time marking thing where, oh, now we're in Leeds and now we're in Manchester and now we're in London. You know, they show you just enough clip to know it's another night in another city. What you yeah. see is the hotels, the cars, the railroad rides, you know, backstage. It's sort of, you know, what's happening behind the scene. So it's a very different take than something like A Hard Day's Night, obviously. Yeah. Or, you know, what we had thought of as, you know, this is, you know, this is Elvis or whatever, you know, documentaries yes. will later come that show you the or your brothers, you know, brothers, the Bruce Springsteen brothers, or whatever it is. I mean, it's not selling something. And, no, and by no, the way, no, no. you know, D- Dylan then, of course, turned around and hired Pennebaker, you know, to, to make another one that was never completed, the Eat the Document uh, documentary. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah. You know, we get to see later on in the Scorsese films. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Should we turn this over to the week's audio, Mark? Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. It's, it's you talking to Pennebaker in 2014. It's substantially about Don't Look Back. We can listen to the first clip. It's um, about Albert Grossman first asking Pennebaker to make a movie about Bob Dylan. Let's have a listen to this. I think 
basically, it wasn't his choice. I think it was Albert's. And I think that Albert was looking for somebody who had uh, done some kind of filmmaking, mm-hmm. which I had done uh, with Time and Life. Yeah. I'd been, so he was looking for somebody who could get him into that world, because I think what he had in mind was selling Dylan to uh, uh, Warner Brothers. Yes, yes. So I was just a step. I didn't, he didn't think we were going to make a, a film particularly, uh, but I was going to shoot some stuff with Dylan, and Dylan would get used to being shot in that style. I see. And, I see. Uh, and how much he knew about the Time Life stuff, I don't know. Okay. And we didn't even ever talk much about it. He just came and said, would you like to make a film with my client, Bob Dylan? John is in a basement, mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement, thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat, bad job laid off. That's really interesting, because it, it really just... That they didn't know what the film was for. The film wasn't a film as such. It was just go ahead and shoot stuff. And then he, the, the, he talks quite extensively about the struggles of getting any distribution that most people weren't interested. And he talks extensively about Albert and Sally Grossman, though I think at one point he's confusing Sally Grossman with Sarah Lowndes, Dylan's wife. But all of that's quite interesting, all these different relationships, who was helping out, who was involved in this, that, and the other. We just another clip. He talks about meeting Bob Newworth and Dylan. Uh, let's have a listen to this. On Don't Look Back, when I met Bob, no, I went to two of them down in the village at a bar. Kettle of Fish or something like that. No, it wasn't, oh, it wasn't yeah. the Kettle of Fish. It was the one on the, oh God, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the, uh, it's gone now. Mm. It's gone now, but it was the place where I knew because all the painters hung out there. Okay. Uh, and where Kerouac and all those people the would go there and hang out with generation. the painters. Yeah. Uh, and it was a, it was a very well-known bar, and we met for in the middle of the day for lunch without anybody there at the time and uh, North was with him and uh, we talked and that was when uh, Bob came up with the idea of of the cards yeah. which I told him was terrific yeah. and then we'd bring a whole lot of laundry cardboards with us yes. which we did we yes. had about 100 of them yes. uh, but I in the course of making the film I could see very early on that North Unlike most people who just thought what I was making was just home movies, right. he saw what I was up to, right. and he knew right away how it worked and how to help it work, and he was interested in it because I think he was interested in making films himself. Right. He was a painter, he yes. did paint, but he, he, he couldn't make a career out of painting. It right. was impossible. Yeah. There were too many giants yes. circling you. So the idea of making a film that was kind of like this, which was uh, what we were doing. We were doing things that we weren't thinking about. We were, first of all, getting rid of the narrator. <laughs> yes, getting rid of the narrator. That's that's the key point there. It's a, I mean, you know, throughout the since it's very interesting. He talks about learning to shoot with sound, 
which was kind of a new process to him, that he talks extensively about Dylan's post-accident life in Woodstock, which is pretty interesting. He talks about the 66 tour film, which he call, they call The Colour Movie, the one that never sort of came out, though I think we've all seen... Bits of it, yeah. Bits of it. I, so I, I wish I could see more of that, because the, the live footage is absolutely amazingly well shot. It's fantastic. He talks about, and he talks about the band. He, he talks about Robbie Robertson criticizing him for the way he shot Otis Redding at Monterey, which is just brilliant. I mean, it's, you know, one of the highlights of that movie and Robbie Robertson picking holes in the way in which he had edited it and shot it. And he talks about playing Billie Holiday to Janice Joplin, which is very sweet sort of coda to this. It's, 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 it's very, it's interesting stuff. He was a lovely man, I have to say. I had interviewed him in 1991, and when I did this interview, which is 2014, quite a lot later, it was on that same trip I came to visit you, Fred. Uh, so I was, you know, researching the books, Small Town Talks. I was, I was asking Don Panabaker a lot about Albert. One of the things he said that just really sticks in my mind was that, you know, when the film was finished, the final edit, and he looked at it, and he kind of realised how how sort of badly Albert came out of it. And he went to Albert and said, look, you know, you don't come out of this very well. Are you sure you're okay with, with, with that? You know, you're a bit of an ogre in it. And Albert said, I'm really comfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, uh, it just says everything about wow. Albert Grossman, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Talis, with your fabulous chapter in Mansion on the Hill, which is like a cumulus nimbus. Is that, is that the title of yeah. that chapter? Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, The Great Cloud, it's, it's, the, it's one of the first long pieces I read about about Albert Grossman and what an enigmatic kind of just sort of strange character Albert was. Peter Baker talks in this interview about possibly one of the last people to talk to Grossman before he got on the plane on which he died. Yes, yes, that's he, right. Yeah, that's that, right. That, that, that was an interesting, interesting detail. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. And, and it's interesting to hear him talk about Neweth. And I mean, you know, I don't know if you ever met, or did you interview Neweth Fred at all or encounter? Well, I have a good story about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, sp- I spent a better part of an hour and a half in a little Mexican breakfast place in Austin, Texas, trying to talk Bob Neweth into giving me an interview. Yeah. We've, <laughs> to, we've all to tried not much avail. Like no. To not much avail. Mm. You know, it was really Omerta, you know, was, was sort of the deal with the people around Dylan at that point. And, um, and, and Bob was very private and, you know, he never wanted to write his memoirs. And, you know, to this day, his, his partner, you know, Paula doesn't encourage anybody to write about Bob. You know, but I must say, you know, I was I was very pleased some years later to to run into Bob, you know, after Mansion on the Hill came out. And he told me that I, you know, he thought I got it right, oh. which was very nice. Yeah, that is nice. It meant a lot, you know. But yes, you know, he and, and he, he nicely came to hear me speak when my Alan Klein book came out. I mean, he was, you know, he was a good guy. He just was very low key. You know, he was, I, I, you know, in, in the Rock on Film book, I describe him as a hipster of all trades, you know, which is really, <laughs> you know, oh, how dear. I think of Bob. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that film sort of begs a question, which is, you know, Dylan was obviously brilliant from, from the get-go. Would his story have been different in any meaningful sense without A, Albert Grossman, and B, Bob Neweth? I think they were both... You know, huge influences on 
on him in their different yeah. ways. Would you agree? I would. I mean, you know, and they're there at about the same period of time. You know, well, you and I know a fellow who put out a lovely book, Michael Friedman. Yes. Just Shout put out, out his to book, Michael Exposure. Friedman. Wonderful yeah. book. Yeah. It was beautiful. You know, he had been one of Albert's associates. He had managed Todd Rundgren and came in and worked with the band and, you know, New Janice. And he has great Bob Newworth stories in there, you know. But Bob was really sort of Bob Newworth and Bob Dylan, you know, it's, it's a different thing. I mean, he talks a little bit about, you know, that Bob was kind of a sweet guy, Dylan, when you first met him, you know, and then after he and Newworth are hanging around, he's not so sweet anymore. And, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and you, um, I assume, knew Myra Friedman, too. The publicist I never met, I never met Myra. I remember now, reading Myra, that. Myra, you know, well. she yeah. was very, very close to Janice and wrote a Buried Alive, you know, the first really good Janice biography. Yeah. And, you know, she said to me, oh, you know, Bob has really cleaned himself up. Bob, you know, he stopped drinking and he's a lovely guy. He goes, but they were mean. Hmm. You know, Bob was a nasty drunk. They were mean guys. Mm-hmm. Well, you see you that know, and don't look back. You see it. Yeah. All the way through. Yeah, there's They're a lot, right. you know, even, right. The, there's the thing, you know, the, well. the sort of two-facedness of it, which is, you know, when Donovan comes up, you know, and asks him to play It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. And he does, and he's polite to him. But when he's not around, there's all this sniggering about that guy, Donovan. I should you know, say quite and, right, rightly so. I'd have sniggered about that guy, Donovan, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think those records are really underrated, man. I think those records have stood the test of time. As we often say in this podcast, that's another episode. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Fred. Go ahead. That's fine. But, you, you know, I just think it was another time and there was a lot on them. And, you know, yeah. the, how well these guys were equipped to deal with what was going on who the hell knows? And of course, you know, Albert had a certain influence too about being mysterious and being distant and keeping the world at arm's length. And, you know, and all of which Dylan, when he speaks about it, denies. In Chronicles, he basically talks like Albert Grossman. He didn't really affect me much. You know, he's no, yeah, yeah, just yeah. the guy, yeah, I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah, sure, sure, sure. Your book, okay. <laughs> yeah. Joan Byers comes out really nicely and don't look back. I think you kind of wonder why she's hanging around with all these assholes, but uh... yeah, being, being treated horribly by well, yeah. you know, the, apparently the story is you know they had toured together in the United States, Bob and and Joan just prior to that tour, and she I think invited herself on this tour. She did. A, I think <laughs> you that's know, true, and and I think expected to be invited out on stage to perform with him as she had been in the states and wasn't. And no one really knows what to say. You know, yeah. it really seems, you know, I don't know where the sort of fault of like, what's Joan doing here is all about. But, you know, I think it was unexpected and, and undefined. One thing you mm. have to say about Bob Dylan, he wasn't a people pleaser. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of putting That's it. That's one way of putting it. There's so many films we could talk about. We, we just don't have time. I just want to mention The Heart of They Come extraordinary film mm. so wayne robbins's review for cream of that movie is also included on the home page for free this week and it's it's a great piece of it very 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 positive piece about perry hansel's film there's also james med a piece about some kind of monster the extraordinary metallica film from 2004 which you fred described as perhaps the only indispensable rock documentary since gimme shelter which I think is, is wow. that's quite a bold statement. <laughs> Would you stand by that? 
probably. But yeah, I, I would. I mean, there are others I like, you know. Yes. I, I really like The Nationals, you know, Mistaken for Strangers. It's a wonderful film also. And I write a little bit about the Wilco film. Yes. And the Mavis Staples film. I mean, there were, there were films we're seeing. But yeah, you know, that Metallica film is really, it's a bold film. You know? uh, and, and completely unexpected, I think. You, yes. you know, you really are inside that in ways that I don't think anybody expected it would be. And God, I do love, you know, the whole sequence where they're auditioning and hiring their bases. Base players. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. incredible. It yeah. is incredible. There's a great quote from Penelope Spheris, who you interview for the book. And she says, she says, basically, people that make movies generally do not understand music or the music business. So it's always a bit of a miracle when a, when a great film comes, is made about about rock right. and roll and, you, and you know genre. you can see you can see the proof of that in 20 feet from stardom right which has its right. producer is gil friesen who ran a&m records yeah so here's a guy who really understands the music is in yes. charge of a film knows exactly you know what to get in the film yeah. right so yeah. she, she hit that on the head is that because like music in films tends to be in service of the filmic vision rather than the other way around do you think it depends on who's making the film Right. You know, I mean, look at the mess that's, you know, Pink Floyd, the wall. Right. I mean, and, and it's a mess worth seeing, you know, but, but it's a mess <laughs> because nobody knows. Or, you know, I start off the book talking about being 17 and going to see 200 motels, you know, the Frank Zappa <laughs> yes, film, yes, yes, that's a right. little tiny theater in a nowhere upstate New York town. And there's nobody there. And the few people who are get chased out in 15 minutes by <laughs> this thing. You know, and you look back and you go, well, you know, Frank Zappa knew a lot about music, but he really didn't know enough about making movies. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know there are Frank Zappa fans right now who think I've just committed the worst sin in the world. But, <laughs> yes. you know, that's my opinion. No, it's a terrible film. I mean, it's absolutely it's dreadful. It's un un virtually unwatchable, but, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> listen, go out there and buy Rock on Film, the movies that rocked the big screen by Fred Goodman, with a forward by Sir Michael Lindsay Hogg, rather than <laughs> Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg. It's a wonderful <laughs> celebration of the very best, or some of the very, very best music films from the last... What, what is the earliest thing? Girl Can't Help It? Is that the, is that yeah, the first Yeah, Girl Can't Help yeah, It is the earliest. It. And, you, you know, uh, some I'm of very, the Alan Freed films that are mentioned. Yeah, I'm very fond of the Girl Can't, Girl can't Help It. it. It's wonderful. I'm partly because it's Little Richard is electrifying in it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it's just... Yeah. She walks by, the mean folks can't in Can't help it, the girl can't help it. She wakes the night, the grass lights turn the toe. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. she got a lot Listen, in an abrupt change of mood, we had no sooner finished recording the previous episode with Mr. Gary Kemp, also a wonderful episode for us. I really enjoyed it. And um, But I think like the next day we heard that Tom Verlaine had died, Tom Verlaine of television fame. So I think we'd like to just talk a little bit about that group and about, about Mr. Verlaine, born Tom Miller in Delaware, I think. We've had on the homepage for the last, well, like 10 days or so, two free pieces. One from 76, Dave Schultz in Trouser Press talking to Verlaine and other members of television. And then Roy Traken talking to Verlaine after 
television had broken up. They didn't last very long. So it's a New York Rocker piece from from 78. We also, on Rock's Back Pages, have a lot of other television stuff, including the incredible Nick Kent review of Marquee Moon that made me and thousands of other pale middle-class boys rush out and buy the damn record. And, you know, uh, the, the, the review was absolutely justified. I mean, I think I still think it's one of the great rock records mark i mean i think yeah, you know, yeah we both saw them we both saw television didn't we at well, hammersmith I, well, that's what, the, I, I went into that gig as a massive television fan having loved marky moon and i left a massive blondie fan who yes, was a support band exactly who frankly blew television off the stage they I mean, really did they were fun weren't they yeah well, television he, were very dour they were always dour when well, they, they, saw they, them just, play. they just stood there and played which you know in a big hall like was what the hammersmith odeon just didn't come across at all and i look i'm in uh, as I confessed to Gary Kemp in the last podcast, I'm something of a deadhead. And television always weirdly reminded me more of Quicksilver and the Grateful Dead than all the punky thoughts. I don't, the vocals were punkish, but instrumentally, it was straight right. out of San Francisco. There were two guitar bands. Yeah, there were two guitar bands. You know, two amazing um, but, guitar players. But I mean, really. you know, that's, that's that album plus the the preceding single, Little Johnny Jewel, yeah. were just astonishing. There's, the following album was massively disappointing. Terrible. Uh, and, really. and in a way, that was it. I mean, you know, Verlaine went on, made made solo albums and so on and so forth. But it was a classic case of just everything that was great about what him was in, that in, was in that one one album. Yeah, Fred, did oh, you see them play? I I saw them play on one of their reunions. Right, Actually, yeah, two yeah. of their reunion. I saw yeah. them twice on on reunion, and and I have to say that you know they could they could bring it. I mean, they, they were not disappointing. Right, lineup, you know that second band lineup was really outstanding, and the two guitarists were wonderful. I mean, I you know I'm a two guitar nut, you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Fred, two guitars, Goodman. You, you know, it, it's just like uh, yeah, but I do think that that was really the story. You know mm. that CBGBs or not, you know when, when you hear Marquee Moon, you know you're hearing, you know, the son of East East and West. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, that, that, that's, it, mm. It's a fabulous sounding record. It's interesting that after Verlaine's death, our friend Richard Williams, RBP contributor, etc., wrote a piece about when he went to New York um, as an island A&R man in 1974 with Brian Eno, and they recorded some demos with television, which Verlaine absolutely hated, hated <laughs> Hated Eno, what Eno was doing to them. And uh, it's an interesting piece to, to, to yeah. read that Richard wrote in The Guardian last week. But it reminds me that when our RBP colleague, Paul Kelly, and myself were in LA on RBP Business a few years ago, we went to we went to, to meet Andy Johns, who produced Marky Moon. He was mixing some kind of, it, 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 mixing a, like a Rage Against the Machine, like uh, DVD, the, the, the sound for this DVD. And we walked into this little studio in the valley in LA and the, the volume, I mean, it's like the whole building was shaking. And, and Andy Johns, who was quite a character, was just like rocking back and forth, like pushing like levers up and down. And, and, and I remember thinking, yeah, my God, you know, and one of the reasons the Marky Moon sounds so fabulous is because this guy had worked with like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, not very punky predecessors, but I mean, it, it doesn't sound really like it. Just sounds like an in, incredible rock record. It's not really a punk record. No, is it's it? certainly not. No, no. But the vocals—it's got, it's got brittle vocals. Atti- that's about yeah. it. The attitude. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like the vel- the vocals are out of the Velvets and the guitars are out of the West Coast. And for heaven's sake, 
Well, I've just got on notes that we just had the news that Bert Bacharach died. Oh, you're joking. No, it's just, oh it's, just, God. Ju- ju- it's just come through. So uh, the question is, do we want to talk about that now? Wow. Because I oh assume you're going to be changing the homepage. Oh, my God. That's, that's, uh, it's, I'm just talking about Bacharach like in the last couple of days to someone. and um, It was 94. That's a pretty good oh, innings. Yes. Yeah. Well, listen, I, I suppose I should say, you know, I'm, I'm, thanks for mentioning that, but it's, uh, it's as a massive Bacharach fan, and I did one phone interview with, with him. He was so lovely. I think he was a, just a genius. But, I mean, I'd just like to invite Fred to, you know, you, you know about Fred, you're steeped in that, 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 that sort of back history, backstory of the Brill Building and everything. I mean, what, 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 what would you, if pressed, have to say about Bert Bacharach? You know, the thing that always struck me about Burke Backrack is, you know, his voicing choices are so unusual. Uh, you, you know, I think Jim Webb owes everything, you know, to Burke Backrack. There yeah. are a lot of guys that is, and, and it's like growing up with it, you don't really notice how unusual it was. Yeah. You know, if, if you, you know, you'd hear a record like, do you know the way to San Jose? And, yeah. You know, it, it would just, okay, this is what pop music is. And it's only later on when you hear something, out of that period that you didn't know, I remember hearing that there was a Dionne Warwick record, Are You There With Another Girl? Yeah. That is such an unusual arrangement. Yeah, You yeah. know, that you just, it's like, it's amazing that anybody would think this way for a pop record. Yeah. And that's what I'm struck. You know, the, the guys, it, it's got nothing to do with rock and roll, certainly. Sure. You know, but, but it's like, I can't place his voicings anywhere but him. They're, it's like a signature. Yeah, I mean, he was classically trained, of course, you know, when yeah. you read but, but interviews those, with him. But you know, him, those soft about, trumpets, you yeah. know, where he picks his stops. I mean, um, uh, also, know, there's, there's, there's a complexity in what he writes, yeah. which is really subtle, but it's just not standard pop music songwriting. We posted the audio interview with, with yeah. Richard Carpenter. A backrack disciple, yeah. And he co-wrote, co-wrote one of the big Carpenter's hits with Burt Bacharach. And he talks about this very interestingly, about how, you know, you listen to Burt Bacharach stuff and suddenly you think, hang on, what did he do there? What did he do there? Mm-hmm. A lot of that going on. Yeah, it's, it's like very unorthodox of... things that you wouldn't expect to yeah. hear in pop records. And you don't notice them until, like I say, you hear a record that you haven't heard. And you go, man, I'm, this guy is so far yeah. out in left field. I mean, talk, talking about sort of the 60s, we're talking about Hard Day's Night. And one of the defining things for me was the English women who covered Bacharach songs. We didn't necessarily hear the Dion Warwick versions mm-hmm. but we heard Scylla Black's versions we heard Dusty right. Springfield's versions you know and Scylla Black actually Burt Bacharach loved her her covers of his well, Alf, her Alfie is just yeah, phenomenal fantastic. Jasper what were you about to say something about Burt I was just going to say that I think that the uniqueness of Bacharach is like that it is partly that classically trained side but also he, he was a fan of I think Count Basie Duke Ellington sure I think he he honed a craft based on a mixture of influences and that enabled him to go and do you know do what he did those really close harmonies and all of that kind of thing you know when if you're thinking about big band music there's a real tightness to things and there has to be a real tightness to things because it's such a big band and then when you apply that kind of precision as you were saying to pop you get something different. Yeah. Also, there's a, there's a harmonic complexity in there, which is yeah. which most pop listeners weren't weren't exposed to. Well, you know, and you realize that you're listening to these records, and they have strong melodies and strong vocal performances, but really, it's the arrangements that are the stars yeah. of the recordings. Yeah. Which is so unusual. 
yeah, yeah. Yeah, and don't forget he'd been Marlena Dietrich's musical director for a few years. Yeah, but but before <laughs> the sort of Backrack and David yeah, yeah. era that we know, one of the stories I most love about but was was about you know his muse Dion Warwick. He wrote the song "Promises, Promises" almost to sort of torture her because he wrote a song that where it's almost impossible to take a breath. Okay. Wow. And it was like, I defy you, Dion, to sing this song <laughs> and, 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 and without literally being able to just have to take tiny breaths in between the, you know, the, the phrasings. And it, if you listen to it, you, re- you really do think, how the hell would you sing this in one take and stay alive? <laughs> <laughs> but Dion was, of course, you know, was, was his great kind of muse and the yes. perfect voice because it wasn't it wasn't like a it wasn't like aretha it was it no, was a cabaret a sort of cabaretish voice yeah very yeah. unique yeah but that's not to say that there weren't countless other great singers who who did beautiful things and jerry butler's version of make it easy on yourself yeah oh my god yeah yeah it's the original version of always something there to remind me um by i think is it is it tommy hunt before sandy Shaw. that that's just divine as well and i love the carpenters close to you yeah, love the yeah. carpenters close to you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, look. So this is um, this is a first of the podcast to get news like that in the middle of in recording. The podcast, um, yeah. I, to me, he was just a, a giant, sort of towering over over American pop, and um, it's very, very, uh, very, very sad news indeed. Even as yeah. as you say, he he had a very good innings if he got to ninety four. <laughs> promises, promises, I'm all through with promises, promises now. I don't. So, given we've had to take that slight detour, do you want to scoot through some of some of the pieces? Well, just just a just a couple of things yeah. from from the last two weeks. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, last week, um, and it, this really ties in with the talking about movies because it's Maureen Cleave meets Peter Paul and Mary, The Evening Stand, nineteen sixty three, and it's straight out of the Mighty Winds, the movie done by the Spinal Tap guys about folk and about how pompous these people are. You know, Paul says. Taller and Gentler said that the folk song had a real subject, not a placebo subject. By this meant it was not sugar-coated pill rock and roll was. The lyrical and melodic content of those songs are the sugar-coating. The lyrics deal almost completely in self-pity. Rock and roll exists on only one level. I mean, I, I just l- love that. we got Paul Nelson's review of Beggar's Banquet. Now, there is a mythology that the great records were, ha- were, were, were slagged off at the time. Largely not true. Not in this case. He says, it isn't the Stones' best album, it isn't a great album, and it doesn't mark any particular point at all in the short history of rock and roll. Sympathy for the Devil is more pretentious than most of the, um, their majesty's request, and the arrangement is awful. I, I mean, I just, I, it's gold dust for me. How wrong can you be? How wrong can you be? <laughs> Sorry, uh, Paul, I'm a huge fan of Paul Nelson. Uh, you know, and, 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 <laughs> give it uh, time, Paul. <laughs> Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. A nod this week to the recent departed David Crosby, into Johnny Black interviewed him, and talking about being when he spent time in jail and he formed a band in jail. He says, there's a lot of musicians in jail, you know. The lead guitarist was exceptional. He's in there for murder. He'll never set foot outside again. Great guitar player. Poor guys never played in front of girls. <laughs> <laughs> That's my lot. 
Jasper. Two things to mention. First of which is a very sweet piece, Sophie Hayward in The Guardian. As Keen bow out in Berlin, I pray it's not for good. Sophie Hayward, kind of despite herself, loves the band Keen for for whatever obscure well, reason. But it's just a funny little yourself, piece. We've, we, we've all got a crust to bear, you know. <laughs> But uh, she tells the story of how one night when I had joined them on tour in Brazil, they agreed that I could have unprecedented access, so took me out drinking caipirinhas in some awful bar that played Beatles covers, and then took me back to Tim Rice Oxley's room where they played the guitar all night. What songs did they sing? What late-night confessionals did they tell? I can't tell you, as being the consummate professional journalist that I am, I passed out on the bed snoring. <laughs> this is where I should have known better than to feel safe in a foreign bedroom with wealthy, famous men fresh from the stage, high on spirits, and a long way from their girlfriends back home. Yes, they did what only rock stars unleashed like a pack of wolves can do in these circumstances. They leant over my steam body and tied my shoelaces together. <laughs> when I eventually stood up, I fell straight over again. <laughs> it's just a funny piece. It just it just nice. tickled me. And I think it's, you know, it, it is nice when people write about things they love, even when they know they shouldn't love them. That's great. Secondly, sing along with the common people, Lisa Verico in the Sunday Times, which I thought was an interesting, it's 2015, piece about... Working class performers. As gritty working class performers get eclipsed by the posh brigade, major labels thirst for the next oasis. And she speaks to a few people, including a duo from Peng, comprising the fantastically named Richie Skint and Harvey Lee, who who are, you know, working class lads. And Skint says, making music is expensive. Since I started working at 18, I've spent most of my money on instruments. There's been a fair few beers bought over the years, but otherwise it's all been sacrifice. No nice clothes, no holidays, no nights out, unless they're ridiculously cheap. We worked to pay for being in a band. It's not like the old days when you could survive by signing on. And I think that speaks to something that we've talked about before on the podcast, where it's an increasingly hostile environment yeah. for anyone that isn't backed by, and daddy. you know, mummy and daddy to make music and to, or indeed any form of the arts. Although it's interesting that Nick Huggett, who's director of A&R Island Records, who's interviewed for this piece as well, talks about how the dream now for, for working class kids is to be on reality TV as that's the like the pipeline instead of instead of pop music mm -hmm. or rock music and it's just you know it's, it's a kind of industry piece i just thought it was interesting sure. to to think about you know what is it about what has shifted in in the industry that makes it that much harder to access great stuff thank you very much jasper that really does bring us to the end of the episode we will be back in a fortnight with ellen sander a pioneering 60s female critic for Saturday Review and author of the 1973 book Trips, Rock Life in the 60s. So looking forward to that. Please do check out Rock's Back Pages, everything that's new. 60 new pieces on the site this week. Find out if your library subscribes. If it doesn't, uh, maybe suggest that they take a trial. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. Go out and buy Fred's book. I'll repeat it again. The title is Rock on Film, The Movies That Rock the Big Screen. It's done in association with, with Turner Classic Movies, although in the spine it says Running Press. I don't know if that's uh, independent of TCM. Hashtag. 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 Yeah. Anyway, it's a wonderful book, and there's wonderful films in there which you should also go see. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Jasper. And above all, thanks, Fred. Bye. Thanks, Fred. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.
That concludes episode 146 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Fred Goodman. Rock on Film, the movies that rocked the big screen, is published by Running Press, and Why Lassa de Sella Matters is published by University of Texas Press. Both are available now from all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.